0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.
1: The Old Central Library will soon offer shelter. The Old Library for now
2: is set to be a temporary shelter just during the winter months of this year. I'm
1: Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. will tell you about organizations across the state bringing medical care to unsheltered people.
3: For the longest time in street medicine, we were kind of seen as these rogue subversive radicals who weren't part of the existing system.
1: A look at the connection between plants and a new kind of plastic, and a conversation about the walkability of our city. That's ahead on Midday Edition. After years of being stuck in bureaucratic limbo, it appears that the Old Central Library in downtown San Diego will finally begin offering shelter services to the homeless later this month. The newly repurposed shelter highlights a growing need for shelter beds and services, especially as the region contends with another day of rain, leaving unhoused residents with few options to escape the inclement weather. Joining me with more on the story is Voice of San Diego reporter Lisa Halverstadt, Lisa, welcome back to the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So the plan to convert the central library into a shelter has been years in the making. Isn't that right?
2: Yes. Basically, since the old library closed in 2013, advocates have been urging the city to consider using it as a shelter.
1: And then so what ultimately cleared the way for allowing this property to be turned into a shelter? So
2: back in 2021, Mayor Todd Gloria directed city officials to assess a number of city buildings to see if they could serve as shelters and he, you know, purposefully included the old library which is, has been talked about for many years um and this past fall the mayor ordered city staff to actually take steps to start preparing a portion of the building to serve as a shelter and and then there was uh you know a court ruling uh recently That just sort of cleared the way, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit more in a moment.
1: Well, I mean, can you tell us a a little more about the planned operations for this soon-to-be shelter?
2: Sure. So the old library for now is set to be a temporary shelter just during the winter months of this year, not a permanent shelter. Um, The city hopes that it can open it by the third week of this month. Um, And once it opens, the National Alliance on Mental Illness in San Diego, a nonprofit, will operate it. And they'll welcome up to 26 people to stay there each night.
1: And there's been a pretty large presence of homeless residents around the old library. It's been that way for quite some time. Isn't that right? Yes.
2: uh, Dozens of people have been sleeping outside the old library for some time now. Um, And for years, you know, people have literally on a regular basis slept in front of the old library. And there have been so many people that are staying in that area that the city actually chose to set up. Um, Some temporary restrooms there as well. Um, All of this, of course, has only
1: increased the calls over the years to use that old library to shelter people. How much pushback from local residents and business owners is there? So thus far,
2: I haven't heard uh, of too many people uh, pushing back. But over time, as this discussion has played out, there have been many uh, community groups and others who've said, that They'd like to see the old library be used for another purpose. Um, you know, as, as I'm sure many listeners are aware, lots of homeless services are currently located downtown, and there have been arguments that uh, this facility should be used for something other than a homeless shelter.
1: Is there information about how much this
2: project is ultimately going to cost? So the city told me that they've spent about $74,000 to prep the facility. Um, This included work on the facility, the HVAC system, painting costs, and really speaking to the challenges associated with this facility. uh, One of the expenses um, that they had was a generator that they decided to rent for six months because there's been vandalism. Um, that had left the old library without power, which, of course, you know, is a symptom of this building just sitting empty for so many years. Um, It's, you know, been exposed to lots of vandalism and other issues over the years.
1: And as you mentioned before, there have been a lot of obstacles in actually turning this property into a shelter. Can you give us a recap? Yeah. So buckle in. So, uh,
2: so for years, as as I talked about, people have called for this uh, facility to be used as a shelter, but city staff had raised a number of concerns um, in the past about why it couldn't. You know, they said that there were plumbing issues, heating issues. Um, the city, as I said, has dealt with vandalism there. Um, but another thing that we learned about, um, more recently, um, that had given the city some pause was an obscure 1899 deed signed by city father, George Marston, who sold the library land to the city many, many moons ago that seemed to require the property to house a public library and a reading room. And this little known restriction, um, essentially killed a past redevelopment plan for the property. Um, But just before Christmas last month, a judge officially cleared that restriction. um, And Gloria's office said that that made it clear that proceeding with the shelter there wouldn't be a problem. Um, But I think what they're even more excited about is that this also gives the city more freedom to consider a variety of other options um, for the property over the long haul. Um, without some of the complications that came up with the last project that was being eyed.
1: And the most recent homeless count for downtown San Diego has yet again shown record numbers. What's the latest on that? Sure. So the
2: downtown business group that conducts a monthly census has not released its December census numbers yet. Um, but the downtown San Diego partnership has counted a record number of unhoused folks staying downtown in its previous few counts. In November, the group counted more than 1,700 unsheltered residents downtown and areas just outside it. Um, and in the previous months uh, of the year, that count had previously been hovering at around 1,400. Um, So the numbers have been rising and and a lot of folks are very concerned.
1: Hmm. When we last spoke, there were concerns that San Diego would be able to adequately provide shelter for its unhoused residents this winter. What's the situation now?
2: So Mayor Gloria has said the city's working to add more shelter options. Um, Recently, the city opened a new hotel for seniors, for example, that opened during the holidays. Um, Now, when rain and cold weather, like we've been seeing recently, are forecasted and certain benchmarks are met, the city does make some additional beds available, specifically in the downtown area. So sometimes as many as 135 additional spaces for folks. Um, But that's not uh, an easy solution for folks that take advantage of it. People have to leave that shelter, particularly the Father Joe's one, as early as five o'clock in the morning. Um, So. That adds up to you know you have about one thousand seven hundred or so uh, shelter beds citywide that are funded by the city, and then you know uh, just over a hundred or so on top of that. Um, that does not match up with the need that's out there. Um, just to put a put a fine point on it, um, you know, during the two thousand twenty two last year uh, point in time census, um, there were about two thousand five hundred unsheltered folks counted citywide. So put that up on a typical night, um, there are about 1,700 beds citywide available. That's just not meeting the need. And then even when it's raining, additional uh, beds are being added, but that still is not meeting the needs.
1: There's still a lot of need. I've been speaking with Voice of San Diego reporter Lisa Halverstadt. Lisa, thanks for talking with us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: A volunteer group is providing medical care to unhoused people in Sacramento, where in 2021, almost 200 unsheltered people died. The practice of bringing medicine to the people is taking off around the state. CAP Radio's Kate Wolf tagged along with Sacramento Street Medicine
6: on one of their recent rounds.
5: Knock, knock, Sac Street Med. Anyone home?
6: Medical student Johan Park is hoping to follow up with a patient the team last saw two weeks ago, here at an encampment next to the American River, nicknamed The Island.
5: Knock, knock. Sacramento Street Medicine.
6: Walking on a path toward the next patient's tent, the team bumps into someone on their list.
3: You're so covered up. I can't, I can't recognize you.
6: The patient has dog bites on her forearms that are healing, and the group helps her change the gauze on them. When they say goodbye, they promise to follow up with her regarding her primary care provider, or PCP. Physician assistant Anthony Minacho is the director of the team.
3: Last time we had to do a little more extensive wound care, um, and this time is uh, doing very well.
6: But Minacho knows there's more to the story.
3: She has a very complicated medical history and could very much use... Uh, extensive follow-up from a PCP, that hasn't seen her PCP in a few years. And so uh, we're going to work with our patient navigator to connect her to her PCP.
6: This is the work of street medicine. It's at once straightforward, gauze on the arms, and complicated, grappling with years of unmanaged illness and no way of getting to the doctor's office. To solve these problems, practitioners say they need authorization to do more, refer patients, treat them for almost any malady, and prescribe medication. Brett Feldman is a physician assistant and the director of street medicine at the Keck School of Medicine of USC.
3: We've spent the last decade or so really increasing the level of care that we can provide on the street to make it equal to what you would get in a brick-and-mortar clinic.
6: Feldman says caring for people in their environments is crucial because unsheltered homeless people face huge barriers to going into a doctor's office or clinic.
3: So if you don't know where you're going to sleep tonight, where your next meal is coming from, if you're going to be safe doing those things, then you're probably not thinking about getting to your PCP visit.
6: At the same time, unhoused people are more likely to be sick and to die early. Homeless people in Sacramento have an average life expectancy of about 50 years. That's compared to a national average of 75. But the state has begun to take notice of the work of street medics. New guidance gives street medicine practitioners more leeway with the care they provide Medi-Cal patients, including reimbursement. Feldman says it gives him hope.
3: For the longest time in street medicine, we were kind of seen as these rogue, subversive radicals who weren't part of the existing system and in some ways kind of viewed the same way as our patients are viewed by society.
6: Feldman suspects there are more than 40 groups operating in the state right now, and members are almost all volunteers. Rounds with Sacramento Street Medicine prove the work is time-consuming and requires at least some level of funding. Feldman says it's worth it to invest.
3: It's always cheaper to, to not provide care or not provide services. At least it seems cheaper up front. But um, the the cost is also known, and, and it's really the cost of our humanity and the cost of civilization.
6: The city and county of Sacramento seem to be recognizing that. They're including street medicine principles in their new five-year plan to address the area's homelessness crisis. In Sacramento, I'm Kate Wolf.
1: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Plastic waste is a huge environmental problem for the Earth and its oceans. One answer to the problem is being explored in San Diego. KPBS SciTech reporter Thomas Fudge tells us of two companies that are making new kinds of plastic.
0: Surfer Tom Cook and I stand on a beach in Encinitas where other surfers are catching plenty of waves. It's a nice clean beach, but plastic waste isn't far away, floating in what they call the Pacific Garbage Patch. Go elsewhere in the world to surf, Cook says, and you see a lot more stuff washed up and left on the beaches. In El Salvador, it was a big rock beach with a lot of tidal flow, and you could tell that there was someone every day that was coming to pick up plastic bottles and flip-flops, but it was just a constant flow of plastic. You know, this stuff was piled up probably like mid-shin in El Salvador. It was pretty gross. Cook isn't just a surfer. He's president of a company called Blue View Footwear that makes biodegradable sneakers. The science behind Blue View comes from their CEO, Stephen Mayfield. He's also a distinguished professor of biology at UC San Diego. Recently, Mayfield showed me his lab where pieces of the foamy material that go into his sneakers swirl in vials of liquid. The water is filled with tiny ocean organisms that are invited to eat the foam.
4: As we're degrading our foams, we're also starting to isolate the organisms that biodegrade them.
0: Biodegradable plastics that go into Blueview shoes are made from algae oil. Mayfield says it's ironic that ancient deposits of algae oil have become the petroleum that we mine and turn into plastic. Mayfield says scientists 70 years ago could have created degradable plastics, but in an effort to make something very durable, they didn't foresee the problem with the plastic waste stream that is now so
4: obvious. So when we set about to redevelop these things, We said, let's make plastics from algae, but let's make plastics that biodegrade at the end of their life, where the material has a half-life that's proportional to the product.
0: Based on their experiments, the shoes will fully degrade in soil and compost in about nine months. In the ocean, it'll take about two years. The need for a new kind of plastic goes hand-in-hand with the overall failure of plastic recycling. Most recently, a Greenpeace report estimated only about 5% of household plastics are recycled in the United States. The San Diego company Gino has been bioengineering plant-based plastics for more than 20 years. Company CEO Christoph Schilling, who got his Ph.D. at UC San Diego, says plastic recycling could work, but it requires a clean, pure stream of the same kind of plastic. That's not what you find in the typical recycling bin.
7: To be relying on plastics recycling as the solution to our plastics waste challenges, it's, it, it can be a part of the solution But we need to come up with other alternative approaches.
0: Gino's materials go into making nylon for apparel. They also help to formulate cosmetics. A primary building block for their bioplastic products is sugar. Corn kernels, for instance, are packed with sugar.
7: Our technology is being used today at the core of a $300 million capital project to build a manufacturing facility in Iowa that will take corn produced from American farmers and convert that into a large volume chemical that makes materials that we will find in a range of different products.
0: Geno technology is being used to make biodegradable plastic bags at a plant in Italy, but many of the plastic materials Geno makes from plants do not degrade. Schilling says it's unrealistic to say we can phase out non-degradable plastics altogether. Mayfield with Blueview Footwear says we can never put degradable plastic on a boat hull that's constantly exposed to
4: water. But equally it's kind of silly to make plastics that are going to last for a thousand years and then put those into a car that might last 20.
0: Meanwhile, consumers and governments have choices to make about what kinds of plastic they will allow in the marketplace.
1: That story was from KPBS science and technology reporter Thomas Fudge, who joins me now to open his reporter's notebook. And Thomas, welcome. Thank you very much. In your story, we hear about plastics being piled up shin deep on the beach in El Salvador. Will you talk about how big this problem of single-use plastics is?
0: Well, the reason I talk to a surfer about this is surfers, you know, who surf all over the world, they see this. Um and as a matter of fact, Tom, who you quoted there was once in Bali, and he said the beach was actually fairly clean because they're very good at cleaning it up. But the the streams that go to the beach were just chock full of these plastic containers. But it's a huge amount of plastic that is just floating in the Pacific Ocean. And this is the problem when you have these containers that are made from a material that does not break down for hundreds of years.
1: I mean, in listening to your story, Tom, I was struck by the line that Blueview CEO Stephen Mayfield says scientists 70 years ago could have created degradable plastics. I mean, but they didn't foresee the problem with the plastic waste stream that we are now living with.
0: Yeah, that's right. They They wanted to make something durable, and they just didn't imagine the problem that, you know, <laughs> we were going to have at this time. And so, it's kind of funny because scientists created plastic and they created this problem. And now scientists are trying to solve that problem.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, so how is making plastic out of algae different?
0: It's in the way that they process it, that they are able to create the right kind of molecules that make it degradable. And by using algae, that also means that they're not reliant on petroleum and because just mining petroleum and getting it out of the ground takes a huge amount of carbon emissions and so they're not doing that. They're taking just a a plant, in their case algae, getting the oil out of it and then making a product.
1: Yeah, I mean, so how do the items he's making, the shoes for instance, look or, or feel different than the plastic we're accustomed to?
0: It sort of feels like you're wearing comfortable slippers i mean the bottom is i think what you would call plastic it is plastic the only difference is it's degradable this entire shoe they say is degradable but in terms of its performance it seems to do very well and the thing about degradable plastics is people may think oh geez if i buy something made of degradable plastic it's going to fall apart in a year and that's simply not the case degradable things only degrade when they're exposed to the right conditions, if they're in a compost bin or if they're out in a field being exposed to microorganisms that eat them and water that makes them wet. So think about that cotton shirt you bought 20 years ago, and it's been hanging in your closet ever since. Has it fallen apart? Well, you haven't worn it all that much, and so no, it's still there. So degradable things don't degrade In sort of dry, protected conditions and in conditions where they're not exposed to microorganisms.
1: Hmm. So then does making plastic from plants then uh, solve the problem of how we get away from making single-use plastics from petroleum?
0: Well, yes. Yes, it can. Now, I talk with the CEO of another company called Gino, and they do make a product that can go into biodegradable plastic bags. As a matter of fact, there's a factory in Italy where they where they do that using Gino technology. But some of those things that they make turn out to be plastic. I mean, they are chemically the same as something that is made from petrochemicals. So just because you make something from plants doesn't mean you're making something that is degradable. That takes an extra step of engineering.
1: And so is Mayfield's idea, uh, recycling doesn't work. So we have to make a product that degrades on its own.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, Jade, let me tell you a little story. Uh, 30 years ago, I was a young reporter in Minnesota. You can probably guess about how old I am now. And I attended a press conference in Minneapolis where officials and people from the plastics industry were saying Minneapolis curbside recycling is now going to start recycling plastic containers. And I remember seeing this woman smile as she crushed up a plastic gallon milk jug and put it in the correct recycling bin. That was 30 years ago. So how are we doing 30 years later? Lots of studies, including the Greenpeace study that was mentioned in my feature showed that 30 years later, we are just not recycling plastics. Uh, Greenpeace says only about 5% of household plastics are recycled. So that experiment in recycling plastics simply has not been a success and so you got to try something else. And what they're trying to do in San Diego is make a different kind of plastic. In the case of Blueview, it's one that degrades.
1: Given that you've really watched this plastic situation uh, evolve, I mean, why do you think recycling hasn't worked?
0: it has not worked for a couple of different reasons. First of all, there are many formulations of plastic out there. You know, when you look at a plastic water bottle and compare it to uh, the plastic bottle that your detergent comes in, there are different colors for one thing, and they're probably different plastic compositions. The other thing is, unless you're just putting water in a plastic container, if you're putting soda in it or food in it, then it needs to be cleaned and you need the water That is required to clean it. And that is why plastic recycling has not worked. It's just too difficult. It's too complicated and essentially too expensive.
1: And so then would this algae-based plastic work for everything currently being made from plastic?
0: That's a good question. And the short answer is no. And Stephen Mayfield admits this. He told me that he would not make a boat hull out of this kind of plastic. So there are some applications where you really kind of need that old-fashioned durable plastic. But think about the plastic that goes into a car. The car is only going to last you about 20 years. Why do you want plastic parts in a car that are going to last for a thousand years? So degradable plastic doesn't work for absolutely everything. But, you know, I think it works for most things. And if this is the direction we can go in, I, I think it's going to go a long ways towards solving that plastic problem, plastic waste problem that we've been talking about.
1: I've been speaking with KPBS science and technology reporter Thomas Fudge. Tom, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Happy to do it, Jade.
1: After a decade of living wild in the Griffith Park area of Los Angeles, world-famous mountain lion P-22 was captured and euthanized last month at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. He was in the care of the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, who determined the cat was too sick and injured to return to his Hollywood home. While in some ways P-22's situation was unique, Mountain lions aren't uncommon here, and they make their homes closer to ours than you might think. Here to talk about that is Dr. Winston Vickers, a wildlife research veterinarian and director of the UC Davis California Mountain Lion Project, along with Dr. Jessica Sanchez, a postdoctoral fellow at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. Welcome to you both.
8: Hi, thanks for having us today.
4: Yes, thanks for, for having us on.
1: Uh, Winston, I'll start with you. After the passing of Hollywood Hills' famous puma, uh, P 22, one of the things that struck me was I didn't
4: realize he lived so
1: close to people.
4: Is this unusual? It's not unusual in California or really anywhere where uh, people have built uh, homes and development out into wild areas. Uh, mountain lions, it's not as if they are around people all the time, but they uh, do. As they wander through their uh, normal territories or disperse uh, from their mothers, they have to find new home. And and oftentimes they will, in that exploration and also just a normal territorial movement, uh, they will at times come around people. Part of that is due to our um, tendency to attract wildlife, actually, other wildlife that may be prey for mountain lions, uh, feeding deer, feeding Uh, Other animals can bring uh, predators closer to people. So uh, we do have a certain amount of of presence of mountain lions, relatively close to people uh, at certain times.
1: And Jessica, there are pumas living close to Safari Park, right? I mean, what do we know about them?
8: Yeah, so um, the San Pascual Valley, where the Safari Park is located, is actually an agricultural preserve, and it's adjacent to a lot of other large areas of land that are conserved and protected. Um, And the San Diego Zoo Safari Park actually includes a 900-acre biodiversity reserve that's part of a network of protected areas. And so um, Dr. Vickers and UC Davis have been monitoring mountain lions in this area um, for several decades now. And Um, We're just now starting to call our mountain lions in our own backyard um, to kind of get updated information on how they're using the landscape in those connected areas.
1: And Winston, you directed a video series on mountain lions. Not only do they live close to people, they also live all over the state in deserts, in mountains, in Hollywood. I mean, how are they so adaptable?
4: Well, they are, uh, they're good at at finding whatever food is available to them, for one thing, they they prey on everything from, from small animals like wood rats all the way up to deer, although they're, they're prominent prey and and what provides most of their food are, are mule deer, and we have deer uh, all over the state in all kinds of different uh areas including right up in you know suburban yards and so forth so since the food is there they they are pretty flexible at at finding it uh they are cats and so they are are pretty flexible animals and they're also good at at avoiding some of the uh, hazards of being around people because they're so good at at staying relatively hidden In the deserts, they have to roam over much larger areas to find adequate food, uh, but they can still exist out there.
1: And Jessica, since these animals seem to be everywhere, how closely are they monitored?
8: Yeah, there's several mountain lion research projects across the state, and they're run by universities like UC Davis, the National Park Service, and the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Um, We monitor them in several different ways. We use GPS collars that allow us to look at their locations. Um, It's usually not in real time, but we can look back and see what kind of habitat they've been using. Um, We also look at their genetics by using um, scat and hair that we collect from the environment and trail cameras that we put out on the landscape and we remotely can um, get images and video of them and see how uh, the areas that they're using, but also some of their behaviors.
1: What's the most interesting thing you've learned about them uh, in monitoring them?
4: I, I think the most interesting uh, thing to me personally is, uh, number one, that goes back to your previous question, you know, how often they do come around people, how how well some individuals can exist uh, as real neighbors of humans. Others, however, are uh totally out in the habitat uh hardly ever uh, interact with humans or come close to humans so that whole variability of their ability to survive is is i think one of the more interesting things but one thing that that we found early on in our study was how often they died and uh, that they had relatively low survival rates for animals that are not hunted uh their their survival rates are are oftentimes in some populations as low as in hunted populations or even lower. Uh, In other states, they are hunted, but they are not hunted in California. So that was quite surprising to us that they had so much difficulty surviving uh, in those areas where they interact with people. And that's because of being hit by cars and uh, being killed when they uh, possibly kill a, a domestic animal that's not adequately protected. Um, so they, they have a lot more challenges than I expected them to have.
8: I think an important point to make is that people may have the perception that mountain lions are around a lot. Um, and that may be true, but in a lot of cases, we never know that they're there. You know, they're existing on the landscape with us, um, peacefully and never causing problems. And so that's been an interesting part of the research is to see how they're trying to coexist with us in the limited amount of habitat that we're leaving them. And most of the time, they're not causing any trouble at all.
1: And Jessica, do we know roughly how
8: many uh, mountain lions make their home here? So there's an estimate from the 1990s that says there's roughly 4,000 to 6,000 in the state. I think that um, we all, all of us researchers agree that that's outdated and needs to be updated. And, and there are people actively working on that right now to get us some, some new numbers. And
1: this question is for both of you. I mean, there seems to be danger uh, and wildlife living close to people and people living close to wildlife. So how can we ensure the safety of mountain lions and ours?
8: So two of the major causes of the mortality that we identified as spec- specifically for the Southern California mountain lions were collisions with vehicles and being killed under depredation permits um, because they, mountain lions fed on livestock. And so Some things that we can definitely do to address those are things like wildlife crossings, um, wildlife fencing along our highways to keep animals off of the highway. Um, But we also need to help protect our livestock and our domestic animals to prevent that conflict that leads to mountain lions being killed under depredation permits. And there's ways to build enclosures for your animals, bring them in at night. Um, There are groups like the uh, Mountain Lion Foundation that have really great information on their websites for owners. Um, of animals. But I think, you know, that's a responsibility that we have as animal owners to protect our animals. um, And it's going to cascade down and and, uh, also help protect mountain lions and other wildlife.
4: And to your question about how do we uh, protect people, uh, awareness uh, is a a big thing when hiking, uh, not, not letting children... Uh, run out ahead of parents or not let letting uh, uh, more susceptible individuals perhaps or attractive individuals to the eye of a mountain lion be uh, out there on their own the statistical likelihood of an attack is incredibly low it's it's lower than being hit by lightning or or uh, being attacked by a shark for instance if you you swim in the ocean so, that the the likelihoods are incredibly low. Uh, Nevertheless, attacks do occur, and uh, that the best uh, study that's been done of the phenomenon uh, by uh, Matson and Logan a number of years ago that looked back over around 100 years, uh, they found that the risk factors uh, for attack were primarily small stature and rapid movement Uh, and so that sort of defines kids and and uh, so we should all be especially attentive and keep kids close when out hiking uh, and just be aware of surroundings and know what to do uh, if encountering a mountain lion.
1: I've been speaking with Dr. Jessica Sanchez, postdoctoral fellow and a San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, and Dr. Winston Vickers, wildlife research veterinarian and director of the UC Davis, California Mountain Lion Project. Thank you so much to both of you for
4: joining us today.
8: Thanks so much. We're happy to be here.
4: Yeah, thanks for having us.
5: We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or Hohenmotors.com.
1: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. In its 2022 Climate Action Plan, San Diego announced a goal to reach carbon neutrality by the year 2035. For that to happen, it will need to make major strides to become less dependent on cars to get around. In his book, Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time, author and city planner Jeff Speck makes the case for transforming America's cities away from cars toward a more walkable future. He has now published an updated 10th anniversary edition of his best-selling book with more lessons for cities. Jeff, welcome to Midday Edition.
7: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: So you have called cars the central problem of American life. Why?
7: You know, I grew up really uh, loving cars. I had subscriptions to Car and Driver and Road and Track, and I could <laughs> I could name every car from the school bus. That was like my my special skill as a child. But the more that I've studied cities and the more that I've worked in cities, the more I've realized that uh, not not banning cars, but putting the car in its place, not allowing the car to dictate the shape of the city is the key factor in how livable and how uh, healthy cities are.
1: And in your book, you write about Rome and how it really shouldn't be a walkable city, yet it is considered one of the top walkable cities in the world. Can you explain what you mean by that and what lessons it may have for cities like San Diego?
7: Well, you know, when I talk about walkability, I I, I mean making places where people will make the choice to walk. And if people are going to make the choice to walk, the walk has to be as good as the drive. And that means actually, according to my general theory of walkability, which is a bit of a joke, but it's very researched, um, it has to do four things simultaneously. It has to be useful, safe, comfortable and interesting. What makes Rome amazing is that it violates a lot of the rules about what makes for a easily walkable, certainly an inaccessible uh, sort of streetscape. But the fabric, you know, what surrounds the streets is so darn useful and so comfortable and so interesting that everyone makes the choice to walk there uh, because it's just so, so darn delightful. I think when it comes to American cities, It's much more important to focus, as I do professionally, and certainly in Walkable City and in this new update to Walkable City, specifically in that safety category, because what we get so wrong in the U.S. and so many places is designing streets for safe walking and safe driving.
1: It's been 10 years since your book was originally released. What has surprised you most over the last 10 years when it comes to walkability?
7: You know the the biggest gains in those last 10 years have probably been in europe <laughs> more than in the united states but the the chapter in in walkable city that i knew i was going to have to rewrite was probably the cycling chapter because that's where the most advancement has been happening the, the quickest all over the country not just in the usual suspect uh, you know leafy liberal places but uh, we've been adding bike lanes all over the us and the technology you're probably aware the quality of the bike lane, the, the advent of the protected bike lane, the buffered bike lane, bike lanes that are called low stress facilities where you don't really feel endangered when you're riding your bike in traffic. That's been the thing that we've seen landing on the streets of many American cities. Uh, we can do a lot better, but uh, that's been an impressive change.
1: Well, you know, when I moved here to San Diego five years ago. One of the things that I noticed was that there wasn't really any infrastructure for bikes. And uh, that was surprising given the good year-round weather that we do have. I know that one major focus for the city of San Diego recently has been adding separate bike lanes. Its latest effort is happening in the Convoy District, a very car-centric part of San Diego. How do bikes and bike lanes fit into this conversation on walkability?
7: Well, you know, the city in which people are biking is actually a much safer walk, uh, city for walking. So they, they work together quite well. You know, when one cyclist hits one pedestrian, it, it runs in the headlines for a week. Of course, cars are the real threat to pedestrians, not bikes. And when you have a city that welcomes biking, people are making the choice then perhaps to drive a bit less and to instead switch over to that biking transit walking lifestyle. You know, when a bike network is truly useful, when you can get where you need to go across the city on a bike, that's when people make the choice. And, and I, I'm encouraged that you use the word infrastructure because, you know, people talk about culture and they talk about how people bike in certain places and don't bike in other places. What we found is that is that biking culture follows biking infrastructure. There's nothing different about people in different places that determines whether they're going to um, bike or not. In fact, weather um, and topography, whether you're hilly or not have a much smaller impact than you would think you know more people bike in hilly san francisco than in in flat los angeles and of course some of the best biking places are winter communities but when you build that infrastructure that's when you generate the biking culture and and the frustrating thing is that you can build a lot of it but if it if, if it isn't enough to form a useful network then you won't see that change in behavior but at some point you cross that threshold suddenly biking is useful and that's when you get the population
1: And you focused a bit more on that biking, that cycling, and this updated version of your book. What else did you not cover in the original version?
7: Well, I think I learned a few lessons I wasn't that sure about, uh, really came home to roost. The biggest one I think that pertains to San Diego is that, you know, the typical street in San Diego, especially downtown San Diego, is not a safe street. The lanes are too wide. They're probably 11 or 12 feet wide instead of 10 feet wide, which is the standard remarkably, and this is something that we've been fixing all over the country, they present themselves in this one-way pair system. I'm sure you're well familiar. A lot of the streets in downtown San Diego are multi-lane one-way streets. One thing that about 85 different American cities have done, and I've probably worked on about six of them myself, is converting these high-speed multi-lane, you know, jockeying from lane to lane, one-way systems back to two-way. City after city are doing this, and when they do it, crashes and injury crashes drop precipitously. So that's something that you could definitely do in San Diego. The other thing that's really changed in 10 years, I didn't really have the courage of my convictions 10 years ago, but now we have a lot more data, is that when you replace signalized intersections, intersections with signals with stop signs, then the crashes drop precipitously. In fact, severe pedestrian injury crashes drop by 68% when you replace a signal with an always stop sign. And if you think about it, it makes sense because, you know, no one's ever speeding through an always stop sign unless they are dramatically breaking the law, whereas people are speeding through signalized intersections all the time to beat the red or just because that green light is an invitation to speed after waiting at the previous signal. The one thing I would add to that, contrary to people's expectation, is that when you replace signals with stop signs in a downtown, you can actually drive through the downtown more quickly. You're traveling slower but you actually get through the city faster because you're never sitting at a light.
1: And what would you say to someone who remains unconvinced that a city like San Diego can move away from being a car-dominant city?
7: Well, you know, you, you, you play the hand you're dealt. I've worked in cities as transit-friendly as Boston, where I live, or as transit-unfriendly as Oklahoma City, where, where they say you're never going to get the cowboy off of his horse. And you are able to make changes in any of these places. It isn't an on-off switch. It isn't that you either have a walkable city or you don't. The question is, how walkable is your city? Are some people able to perhaps lose one car per family? Or some people maybe have no cars per family. But the more people you have walking, biking, and taking transit, and the fewer people you have driving, the more productive economy you're going to have, the higher GDP you're going to have. You know The, the statistical correlations are so strong between walkability and almost any measure That you can consider in terms of a city's success. You know, more patents per capita, you know, higher GDPs, uh, more creativity, healthier, slimmer populations. You know, a study was done in San Diego that found out that 60% of residents in a low walkable neighborhood were overweight, compared to only 35% of residents in a high walkable neighborhood. And you find that nationally. Our cities aren't so much different from each other as parts of cities are different from each other. The more car-dependent a part of a city is, the less healthy the people are going to be, the worse the air quality is going to be.
1: And so then what are some simple steps cities can do to make its streets more walkable and also to bring more equity to neighborhoods?
7: The uh, two fundamental laws of good planning are uh, bring density to transit and bring transit to density. But on a street-by-street, neighborhood-by-neighborhood basis, it is just so important to design the streets for the speeds which you want the vehicles to travel. And that's a fundamental difference between the U.S. and Europe. You know, we have these vision zero uh, policies where the goal is to have zero traffic deaths per year. And in certain countries, certain cities like Oslo and and Stockholm, they actually have zero traffic pedestrian deaths uh, last year. I mean, it's astounding. In the U.S., you have hundreds. In fact, I, I read that 294 pedestrians were killed in traffic collisions in San Diego last year. That's an incredibly high amount. And the reason is that in Europe, they they determine how fast they want cars to go and they design streets then to only allow drivers to feel comfortable when they're driving at speed. One other final thing. You have this new statewide mandate in California where, you know, local municipalities are are losing the ability to make choice about providing new housing. It's becoming state state mandated. These are a good step. Uh, I support these. However, In the absence of good planning, they're really um, uh, dangerous because you can end up with some really bad and ugly and and, uh, socially unfriendly buildings. There's another technology called form-based codes, which replace the typical statistical base and zoning-based codes that we have in our cities with actually describing the shapes of buildings and how they meet the street and how friendly they are to the sidewalk and where the parking goes. These form-based codes are are, uh, taking over the country, applying new housing mandates that might come from above with the idea that you can shape that growth and make it as of right you, know, you can build a building here tomorrow if it fits this uh if it fits this shape based on this code um that's a great way to engineer a future that's much healthier wealthier walkable and and livable
1: i've been speaking with jeff speck author of walkable city how downtown can save america one step at a time An updated 10-year anniversary edition is out now. And Jeff, thank you so much for joining us.
7: Hey, it's really been my pleasure. Thanks for covering this really important topic.